All right, our teaching this morning is from Ruth chapter 4. You can follow along either in the bulletin printed or in your Bible. And Ruth chapter 4 is the conclusion of this gripping story, a love story and also a faithfulness story, a faithfulness of, of God to provide for his people. Let me set the stage a little bit for, um, for the story. Just see if I can get this a little bit more level. Let's set the stage for the story. Ruth chapter 4. Naomi and her husband Elimelech had two sons, and there was a famine in the land of Bethlehem, or the area of Bethlehem. Ironic because Bethlehem means house of bread, and yet in the house of bread there was no bread. And so they picked up and they moved to Moab, a neighboring country. And there both of the sons found wives, and they stayed for ten years. But then both Elimelech and the two sons died, and Naomi was left with two Moabite daughters-in-law and little way to provide for herself. She had heard that the famine was over back in Bethlehem, and so they picked up to leave, but Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, No, you stay here. Go back to your families. Find new husbands. But Ruth, said, no, I will go with you. Ruth goes with her, and sure enough, the harvest is going on when they arrive back in Bethlehem. And there Ruth comes under some special care by a man named Boaz, who owns one of the fields. He notices her because of her character, the story tells us. Knowing that she is both a Moabite, a foreigner, who were known to worship other gods and do some pretty heinous things. And yet Ruth was an outlier. Her reputation had preceded her the way she had cared for her mother-in-law. Naomi and Ruth come up with a bold plan and Ruth goes and makes a proposal to Boaz, a wedding proposal. And Boaz accepts the invitation, happy that this has come to this, but there's a complication. In the economy of the day, in the rules of the day that they followed, there was a, a redeemer who was closer than Boaz, who had a responsibility first to care for Naomi and Ruth. Wait for this to pass. And so Boaz says to Ruth, wait here. I won't rest until this matter is resolved. And he goes to the city of Bethlehem, to the walled city area. And our story picks up in chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer 
of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, I'm not going to pause as much in reading through this whole thing today. In fact, I probably won't pause the rest of the way through. But I do need to set the stage for today. Every act of this, every chapter is kind of taking part, place in a different setting, you notice, from, uh, from Moab to the, the uh, wheat fields to the, the house of Naomi and Ruth to the threshing floor. And now we're at the city gate. And the city gate in the, these times played this multifunctional role. It was a, a central gathering place, more than just a local coffee shop, maybe a little bit like our parks have become today. But it also played the function of sort of courthouse, city hall. It was a meeting place. It's fascinating to go and visit some of these ancient ruins because there you can find these little chambers that sat next to the city gate right there where people would meet. A lot of times they were about the size that could fit 10 or 12 people in. It would have been a little bit crowded, but it made sense because the city gate was also a center place of economy for the city. People would come in and go out bringing their goods for sale. It was also a place where security was enforced. You knew who was coming in and going out, a single point of entry. It was also the most elaborate of the construction in these ancient cities. They poured a ton of money into building a secure gate because the gate, of course, was the weakest point of the city wall. And so there were a lot of times, especially in a smaller city that didn't have temples and other things built up, the city gate was the most elaborate of the structures of the city. It was a place that people went to, to enjoy uh, community with one another and impressive architecture and the decisions were being made. And so in this place, Boaz goes and it's not surprising to find these elders of the city and even other people around who play a part in this whole set of events. So let's keep reading, knowing we're at the city gate. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. They say sometimes the grass withers and the flower falls. And Isaiah goes on to point out that but the word of God stands forever. This story of Ruth, beautiful, poetic, is the very word of God. Did you notice something about the story? That even though it's named Ruth, all of a sudden it turns in the last few verses to focus on Naomi. It's kind of a strange turn. I don't know if you picked up on it as we read those words. The Boaz took Ruth, a happily everlasting kind of ending. They have a son, and the son is said to be Naomi's son. 
Some people have asked the question, why not name this book Naomi or Boaz? It's as much about each of them as it is about Ruth. The story began, began with Naomi, and it ends with Naomi. Naomi had nothing in particular that would have made her stand out. She was doing what was necessary to survive through most of the story. Some of the time to be praised, some of the time to be questioned. And yet the story at the end focuses in on her and the provision that the Lord has made for her in her old age. The whole story of Ruth has been a story of the obstacles, the, the, the troubles that Naomi faced in life. And it seems at first glance that Naomi's stick to her her fight at all costs is the part of the, 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 the heroic act of the story that we should commend. And I don't want to set that entirely aside. But I think what we find, the reason, the reason that Naomi is the start and the end of the story is because the story focuses on how it is God who brings the provision for Naomi in a way that's quite outside of her own capability. She is not able to resolve her problems. Wise as she is at times in her decisions and her counsel, tough as she is oftentimes at staying with it and continuing to persevere. It's interesting, even the land seems to be still in her possession, and yet Naomi seems to be land rich yet cash poor. I was probably going to lose my voice by the end of this if I didn't turn this on. Check one, two. Check one, two. Thank you, Jonathan. Did you notice that? There's some question of whether Naomi owned the land or whether they sold it as they were leaving for Moab and then had run out of money. And we won't go into the theological kind of nuances of that in the text and especially some of the questions in the text. But it seems like Naomi still has control of the land and yet is not able to farm the land. Certainly at this short uh, short notice, she's not able to make provisions from the land at this harvest time. And yet Naomi comes away full, even after there's still some conflicts that need to be resolved. 
The first conflict we come to is this other redeemer. It's kind of a surprising twist in the story. It's not insignificant that we don't even find the redeemer's, this other redeemer's name. He is just another goel, the Hebrew word. The redeemer we've looked at in the last few weeks by this time in Israel's history had become something of an amalgamation of two concepts, and that is the responsibility of a brother. If a, if a brother dies, the responsibility of a brother, if a brother dies without having children, the responsibility of a brother to have children, uh, to marry his, his, uh, his brother's widow and have children to perpetuate the name. Alongside of this concept of the kinsman redeemer who had more responsibility to care for the land because the land had been given to these people so that they would care for it and that it would be a place of blessing for many, the centerpiece geographically of blessing. The rule of the redeemer didn't really speak of marrying other people and so these things had become something of an amalgamation and yet these customary laws tended to have oftentimes the rule of biblical law for the people. Now, that doesn't mean it was the right thing to do, but in the time, this is what was going on. So when we speak of the Redeemer buying this wife, we're probably speaking of something that was extra biblical by this time. But all of, that, all of that aside of what, what was right with the Redeemer, what we see here is the hand of God working through these people to bring salvation. And the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz probably been, would have been told by many. It was already a story that was known, but it doesn't make its way into Scripture. It doesn't become recorded until it's clear that David, the king, traces his roots back to this particular story from Bethlehem. The story of Ruth, a Moabite, like the story of Tamar and Judah, who had this weird relationship that produced their son Perez, who is mentioned multiple times, who is the ancestor of both Boaz and Elimelech. The presence of both of these in the genealogy of King David and ultimately the genealogy of Jesus points us to this greater truth, this wonderful truth that God uses messed up people, messed up situations to bring good things, to work ultimately as salvation, but also in each of our lives. The messed up things that have happened in your life to you and the messed up things that you have done in your life to others and even to yourself, the stories of Ruth, Tamar, Boaz, they give us hope. 
They give us purpose for the background of our stories that we want to write off, that we want to hide away in some story or in some closet, but that God brings out. doesn't mean you have to broadcast this everywhere, but that God brings out and he proves in stories like Ruth, this is how I accomplish my purposes. And it gives us power for transformation in our lives. That the stories do end up well, even though oftentimes we have to go through tragic, painful situations. Now the story continues on. This Redeemer, this other Redeemer, is presented with the opportunity to buy the land. We don't know much about this Redeemer. Is he already married? Does he already have a son? Does he know of the situation with Ruth the Moabite? Or have any knowledge of it? He's presented with the opportunity to buy the land. And he says, yes, I will buy it. Probably seeing the economic upside, but giving him the benefit of the doubt. Probably also being aware of his responsibility to care for the land as a redeemer of the land. The author of the story adds a little bit of drama to the story. Not that it didn't happen, but putting in this extra detail of saying that Boaz presented the case but left out Ruth the Moabite in his presentation of it. The Redeemer says, yes, I will do it. And then Boaz adds to his, his story, well, if you do this, you inherit Ruth the Moabite as well. At which point the other Redeemer immediately backs out. And he gives the explanation, lest I would inhibit or cause problems for my own inheritance. Does he not want to marry her because she's a Moabite? Is, she, is he already married and this is another economic responsibility he's not able to take on? The question of polygamy is oftentimes brought up in the Old Testament. King David, of course, has multiple wives but nowhere in the Old Testament is it commanded. Nowhere in the Old Testament is it promoted. Difficult situations like this one arise both for King David and many others who find themselves wanting to care for somebody who doesn't have anybody to care for them and yet creating a situation where a polygamous relationship is there. Of course, the practice is eliminated and barred when we come especially to the New Testament more explicitly. But these types of situations raise the question, what is the responsibility and who would care for some of these women, especially when sometimes there were far more women than men? And it gives some explanation, though not justifying the practice. We ultimately don't know why he backs out, but clearly when the situation with Ruth is presented, he backs out. And Boaz 
can hardly contain himself because he clearly wants to marry Ruth. The elders aren't the only ones there. The story goes on to explain, and all that were there, and so in this dealing, many people had gathered together to watch how this transaction was going to unfold. It was a, it was a, a big question. Boaz was a prominent figure in the community, and Ruth and Naomi had also made their presence known. The story was well known. And so when they finally come to the transaction, and the sandal and it's, is handed over, The people say, we are witnesses. It's not just the elders. I'm in verse 11. The people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, like Tamar and Judah and the house of Perez. They celebrate this. They celebrate this, and when they mention Rachel and Leah's name, they bring up another point that is really easy to read over in the whole story here. And that is that Ruth had been married for 10 years to Malon. We just learned in this part that Ruth had been married to Malon and, and not Kilion. We, it hasn't been pointed out until, until chapter 4 here. That Ruth had been married to Malon for 10 years and still had no children. This is a significant part of the story especially when you consider that one of the big questions was, is there going to be a descendant, an heir, a son born to them, to Boaz and Ruth, who could carry on the name of Elimelech? Both Rachel and Leah had struggled having children. And it wasn't until years later for each of them that the Lord miraculously opens their womb so that they can have children. And that seems to be the same situation for Ruth. We don't know if the problem was with Malon or Ruth or both of them, but clearly they have no children. And so when the news that Ruth becomes pregnant and has a son reaches the people, the response is, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. The child is named Obed, it seems like the neighbors which probably were primarily women. The text, the, the, the Greek indicates this in the female. And so it's probably referring to Naomi's female friends, neighbors, 
had gathered together to, to name him Obed. Doesn't mean that Boaz and Ruth didn't have an important say in it, but Naomi is the focus of the story now here, and the name Obed means servant. The name is a shortened version of Obadiah, which is a name that's all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God. Obadiah means servant of the Lord, and Obed means servant. Obed was the one who was going to serve Naomi, but ultimately serve all of humanity in bringing salvation through David and eventually through Jesus. Obed was the hope in the eyes, in the life of Naomi. This child, Obed, is a pointer to the hope that was coming in the servant king that is Jesus, who is born in the same town. Bethlehem is not a big place. The same town as the town of, as, as Obed was, and as David was. Now here's the fascinating twist on this whole story. Did you pick this up that the blessing that's given to Naomi refers to Ruth, and it says that Ruth was more valuable to Naomi than seven sons. Ruth was more valuable to Naomi than seven sons. And you may say, oh, that's just an archaic way of putting men in, in, in positions of more importance than women. But there's something else going on in the text here. The number seven, of course, you're, you know, is a number of perfection in biblical times. But the concept of seven sons had a particular meaning, and that was a sign of a full family. Being agricultural people, needing people to work the land, having seven sons was a sign of blessing. Two families in particular have seven sons. Job, it says, had seven sons as a sign that Job had everything he could possibly want, materially, relationally, and it's all taken away from him. And then when his fortunes are restored at the end of the book of Job, what does he have? He has seven more sons. Also female, also daughters. But it's a sign of this perfection of a perfect family. There's another family that has seven sons. Do you know who it is? It's Jesse. The father of David, and David is the seventh son. And so for the Hebrew to be reading this story, particularly knowing that David is now the king, the seventh son, to hear the words spoken in this story that says, Ruth is greater to you than having seven sons is for the narrator, the author of this book, 
led by God himself to say that Ruth is more valuable than David himself in this whole story. That through all of this conflict and all of these troubles, it proved that the faithfulness and the commitment of Ruth, that she was not just trusting that God was going, that, that, that things were going to work out if she went back, or not just trusting that Naomi would take care of her, but that when she says, your God will be my God, she is saying, putting her trust in the God of Naomi to provide for all of their needs, even though the deck is completely stacked against them. Knowing that most people will be like this other redeemer who are not interested in marrying the Moabite Ruth in providing heirs for their family to continue on the family line, knowing perhaps that even the Redeemer who would come and buy the land may not be faithful to provide for Naomi and Ruth to begin with. You remember how the story of Ruth began and the book of Judges ended. It was saying that in this time of the Judges, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And Boaz even gives the warning to Ruth, don't wander off into other fields. Don't go off into other places. There is a very real and present danger in this place, in this time. For Naomi and Ruth to go back was not necessarily a safe venture. And yet Ruth and Naomi together go back and show a faith in God and that faith itself doesn't deliver them, but the God who they put their faith in delivers them. But the whole point of Ruth is not that your marriage, your life is going to turn out just the way you had planned it. In fact, most of us know that marriages are difficult, that family life is difficult, fraught with all kinds of problems. Most of us know that pain exists in this life in deep and abiding ways. And the story of Ruth is pointing us to this, the hope that we have not in this life alone, but in the life that is to come. And when we put our hope in God himself, that he will provide for our salvation as he has through Ruth and through Obed and through Jesse and through Jesus himself. We bring a hope into the relationships in this life that transform the things of this life and change the way that we look at other things, situations, other people. And it takes the burden off of those people to try to be your Savior. And Jesus says, I'm the one who can take that burden and solve your problems for you. And my gospel is what you need in your life in order 
to experience this life more fully. And the way that he does that is by calling each of us to be Obed. Servants of God and to one another. Obadiah's servants of God were all called to be, but also Obed's serving the widows, the grandmother widows that are needing our help, serving those who are lost around us, transforming our lives that we don't have to hold on to the things that we think are ours or 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 make the most of every situation, but to be able to see our lives as being called to be servants of others because Jesus has become the servant of us because Ruth served her mother-in-law and then had a child named Servant who is going to be the father of the servant of all. The story of Christmas tells the story of a, an infant, a little baby, who would come and be their savior. And Obed, of course, can't serve and save everyone, but he's, he's a clear pointer to the one who does come and serve and save everyone. Even David, David in all of his goodness still have those, has those faults and he, he can't build the temple of God. He still has those things and Solomon in all of his power and glory can't solve all of our problems even with his wisdom, even with our wisdom. But it is the hope of Jesus Christ who can come and solve our problems just as the book of Ruth has pointed us to him and shown how God overcomes these problems and uses our stick our diligence, but also works through our weaknesses and transforms broken situations to do wonderful things. I hope the book of Ruth has been a hopeful book for you. I love going back through it, studying it. It's appropriate now that we would turn to have the Lord's Supper, that we would study this uh, house of bread that, uh, that has provided the bread that is Jesus. Let me, uh, let me pray first, and as you're... Uh, well, no, you can come. Yeah, I think. Thanks. Um, if you didn't pick these up already, we've got individually packaged bread and wine. Now, it's, the bread is fresh. So it's not something that we bought and had shipped to us from Amazon. Thank you, uh, Alan Carson, for packaging those today. And um, if you have it, something at home that you'd like to celebrate this with us as well, you're welcome to. Let me pray and ask God to uh, bless the reading of his word and also this meal to us. Father, we thank you that you have fed us with this bread that is from heaven. And that is Jesus who calls himself the bread of life. 
We thank you for this picture that the bread of life comes from the house of bread that is the city of Bethlehem and that you have fulfilled your promise that this king, this great king would be born there, the city of David, the city of Obed, the city of Boaz and Elimelech and Naomi and even the city of Ruth. Father, we thank you for the call to be servants in your kingdom. We ask that you would strengthen us for that purpose and to that call. That we would give of ourselves to one another without fear. That you would work in us lives, hearts of generosity. And that we would look more and more each day to the provision and generosity of our servant, Jesus, the servant king. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name, blessing this meal to us. Amen. I'm going to do this in just slightly out of order and explain that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, broke bread, and he took it and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took wine. In the same way, he took wine and he explained that this is the blood of the new covenant. It represents his blood, Jesus' blood, which is the blood of the new covenant, the blood that was used to cover over sin. The life of the body is in the blood, Leviticus says. And Jesus' life is given to cover your sin. His blood is shed to cover your sin. We say each week the time that to take the bread and the wine is to declare publicly here in this place, a public place, that I believe that Jesus has died for my sins and in him and in him alone are my sins forgiven. That he has risen from the dead and he rules over all of creation. That he is king. If you're in a place where you're searching for truth and wondering if this Jesus is real, Don't take the bread and the wine to bear false testimony. There's no need to do that, but seek out Jesus. Hear his scriptures taught, explained. Read them on your own. Ask questions of friends. Experience the fellowship of believers. need to talk to somebody in air traffic control. The planes were not as well timed today, were they? Jesus, when he was betrayed on that night before the betrayal with his disciples, they're celebrating the Passover meal. There was a lamb there. There was bread and there was wine. We have no lamb here because Jesus went to be the sacrificial lamb for our salvation. But he told his disciples, continue to do this in remembrance of me. By his body, our sins have been paid for in full. The bread of life, Jesus, broken, Jesus' Jesus' body broken for you.
and through His blood, sinless, your sins have been washed clean. As I pray, the musicians come up to play the closing song. Father, we thank you that, uh, that you have given us this bread of life. And never again will we experience famine in the house of bread. That though we walk through many trials and sufferings in this life, you are always with us, feeding us by the power of your word, assuring us in the hope of your salvation. As we celebrate Christmas and the events of the city of Bethlehem, may we delight all the more in this provision of yours. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.